You missed the memo. Uh, we at the Cossack household have a lot of children. Uh, we have seven children. Uh, for the math challenged, that means we have a family of nine. Seven plus two, me and Melissa, that makes nine. And it is massive. I mean, there's no way to really understand what it's like to have seven children other than to do it. So if, if, you're, if you're game, keep pushing forward, okay? Get, get seven and then we can share, share stories. But everything you do gets bigger when you have a lot of kids. Everything scales up. I mean, holy stinking cow, it is, it is a lot. Air travel, yeah, that's not happening. Uh, try buying try buying nine plane tickets when you want to go somewhere. So when you take a vacation, you're driving. Uh, road trip bathroom breaks, okay. Uh, might as well stop for the night uh, when you when you stop off and uh, and you're gonna you're gonna try to get everybody in and out real quick. Yeah, that's not happening. Food, uh, something simple like tacos, right? We cook tacos at at the house. It's not uncommon for us to have to make 40 tacos to feed the family. Uh, and people thought we were hoarding, you know, when COVID hit and we went to Walmart. No, that's just called grocery shopping for us. So everything kind of is a lot bigger. Uh, you're dealing with a lot more. Uh, but today we're going to look at a story that dwarves any level of mass meal planning that we could ever face. Uh, in our house. We're going to look today at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And it's a pretty well-known story in the Gospels. In fact, all of the miracles that Jesus ever did, of all of them, this is the most massive miracle just in sheer scale and number. Uh, when you add up everybody that was involved in this story, um, the 5,000 men that are listed, plus women and children that would have also been there, you've got between 15 and 20,000 people, and he creates a meal for them. I mean, try, just try for a second to wrap your head around a crowd of 15 to 20,000 and then feeding them all. Uh, there's no other miracle that Jesus did that involves this many people. And the massive nature of this miracle, it makes it remarkable. And that's why all four Gospels include a reference to the feeding of the 5,000. All four of the different Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them tell this story. And interestingly enough, uh, this is the only miracle other than Jesus' own resurrection that appears in all four Gospel accounts. This is it. So there's a significance to the feeding of the 5,000. This is the fourth miracle that John uh, records in his gospel. And we're going to be using John's uh, telling of the gospel story uh, for this recording of the miracle. The first one uh, in John was creating wine at the wedding in Cana. The second one was in chapter four, and that was the healing of a nobleman's son. And the third one was in chapter five, and that was the man at the pool uh, who had been there for decades and Jesus healed him and told him to pick up his bed and walk. So this is miracle number four in the gospel of John as he writes the biography of Jesus, you know, the gospel. And he's introducing us to Jesus, obviously a man, but also fully God. And that is John's purpose and intent in writing uh, his account of the gospel. Why does that matter? Well, if you look at the end of the gospel of John and the reason for his writing, you read this in John chapter 20. 
Verse 30. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. So this isn't even an exhausted an exhaustive amount or a record of the miracles of Jesus. There's a lot more that was done. There's a lot more miracles that took place that couldn't possibly have been recorded. And that's to tell us that, you know, these, this is just a sampling. So why are these written though? What, why the record of all of these miracles of Jesus? We see that in the next verse in John 20, 31, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. That's why. That's why we have the Gospels. That's why we have these narrative accounts of the life of Jesus uh, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we see these miraculous accounts told to us so that we would know that Jesus, not just know, but believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that's the primary purpose of miracles. You know, we've been talking for six weeks now about miracles. And we've talked about the four categories of miracles in the first message in this series. Miracles of provision, miracles of protection, miracles of restoration, and miracles of demonstration. There's four different categories of miracles that you can put every miracle that you read about in the Bible into. And really, this last category of miracles of demonstration, every miracle could fall under that category because they show us God's power and his goodness. And so when we see these miracles unfold, when we see the story being told, we are, we are being demonstrated the power and the goodness of God. And that's the purpose of the record of the miraculous in the Gospels, to demonstrate that this man, Jesus, who lived in the nation of Israel, was born in Bethlehem, lived his early life in Nazareth, came to Jerusalem, ministered across the entire nation, died, buried, rose again, ascended, and promised to return, is God, fully God in human form. And that's what the miraculous is designed to help us understand more fully. So let's take a look at this next miracle that John uses to tell this incredible story. And we're going to look at John 6 verses 1 through 15. In John 6 1 it says, after this Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of, the, the sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, so he's in Galilee on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's gone there for a number of reasons as he crosses to this side. He's gone there for ministry to the Galilee region, but he's also gone there because he's very, very much aware of the leaders of Israel desiring to not only get him off track, not only prevent him from doing ministry, but to execute him. They want him dead. They want Jesus gone because of what he is, he's disrupting the status quo. And he's got more ministry to do though, and he knows his time has not yet come to go to the cross. So he leaves to find the isolation of Galilee. Now Capernaum is his headquarters uh, where Peter and Andrew lived. Uh, and he's going around the villages and the towns of Galilee teaching, uh, which he does for an extended period of time. A huge chunk of his ministry. You know, Jesus did ministry for three years, right? Over a year here is spent in the Galilee region, and he's healing and teaching concerning the kingdom of God. And in the process of doing miracles, healing all kinds of people, casting out demons, he's drawing this massive level of popularity huge crowds are beginning to follow him. And so now you have another issue. This is east of the Sea of Galilee. 
which was pretty much a route that people would take to go to Jerusalem. This was one of the main thoroughfares on the way to Jerusalem, and the Passover is approaching. So pilgrims would be coming that way as well to go down to Jerusalem for Passover. So you have these huge crowds that Jesus is gathering, as well as now the Passover crowds are starting to head to Jerusalem. And so you've got this flow of humanity uh, that is coming down the trails on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, as well as this massive crowd pouring out to find Jesus. Wherever he goes, they just follow him. And that's the scene as we come to this moment. Why the east side? Um, the 12 had just returned from a preaching and teaching mission uh, that's recorded in Mark 6. So Jesus sent them out in pairs and they went preaching and teaching and they've just come back. Uh, and Jesus wants to pull them back now and regroup and find out what happened. Kind of, hey guys, it's time to report in. Tell me what you learned. Because Jesus is training these disciples, not just uh, using them. He's training them. So he wants to debrief with them and find out what happened. They're also physically drained and emotionally drained from this extended time of ministry that they've just been on. And Jesus wants to take time to rest and invest. He wants to rest with them and invest in them during this time. So they go to the east side. Everyone lived on the west side. It was the western shore of Galilee where Tiberias was, the big city. Uh, it's much more rural on the east side of Galilee, more scattered population. So that's where you went to retreat. You could slide up the foothills of the Golan Heights, which is just east of the Sea of Galilee. So that's where they went for a little bit of a, this is a retreat, a getaway of Jesus and his disciples. John 6, 2. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. So it's because of the miracles, because they saw what he was doing, they, they just kept coming. They wanted to see more. Whether they believed he was who he said he was, they saw evidence of the miraculous and they wanted to be around that. Who wouldn't want to be? And I don't want to spend a ton of time on this this morning, but it's important to realize this point. Just because you're part of the crowd around Jesus doesn't mean you're a disciple of Jesus. Just because you're a part of that crowd uh, doesn't mean you're, you're one of his followers. Uh, and in the same way today, just because you're in church week after week doesn't mean you're a Christ follower. You know, just being, being in Chick-fil-A every day doesn't make you a chicken sandwich. Uh, it, it's, it's not, uh, it's not uh, just something that happens. Um, it means we've got to ask ourselves with regard to, to church, why am I here? Why am I part of this? Is this because of him or is this because of me? A lot of the people who came, you know, rubbernecking just to see what was going on, just to kind of catch a sight of these miracles or just to benefit personally because they had a need. Uh, but here's the thing. Many of them did become true followers of Jesus. So they might be drawn initially because of the miraculous or because of the community or because of the show. Uh, many of them eventually made the decision. They believed. And everybody has to make a decision eventually. Do I believe Jesus is the son of God? And, you know, ask yourself that question. Do you? Has he made a difference in your life? And if he has, and you're just kind of hanging out at church, you're hanging, this is a cultural thing for you or a community thing for you. I, I want to encourage you and challenge you. Make it a personal thing for you. Make it a spiritual thing for you. Make the decision to acknowledge Jesus 
as the son of God and as the Lord of your life and, and give your life to him, there is no better place that we can trust our lives to because he has made a way for us to be forgiven, for us to experience eternal life after this life is over. And the only way that happens is when we acknowledge Jesus is who he said he was and give our lives to him. So let's continue in John 6, 3 through 15. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, as we just referenced. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. So there really is no escape for Jesus. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. And after everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he, slept away, he slipped away in, into the hills by himself. Okay, uh, a story that is familiar to many, um, but there's so much that we can take out of this story other than just Jesus fed a lot of people. Jesus fed 5,000 men and their families with five loaves of bread and two fish. Now that's a lot of people, not a lot of food. Just in case you didn't catch that the first time, lots of people, not a lot of food. Let's put things in perspective here, but we'll bring things up to date. A little boy's lunch is not going to have five loaves and two fish. Let's say that I wanted to feed the entire crowd at an average Mavericks game, okay? Average attendance at the Mavericks games are just over 20,000 people. And I wanted to feed that crowd with five hamburger buns and two all-beef patties, okay? Uh, so a couple of Big Macs without the special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, and onions. That's what we're talking about here. It's pretty ridiculous. Uh, and yet that is exactly what Jesus did the equivalent of 2,000 years ago. He fed what some expect to be around 20,000 people, after you count the women and children, with the equivalent of a few Big Macs. No question that is miraculous. There's really no way around that. You can't, you can't just say, okay, everybody take really tiny bites. You know, let's stretch this. Uh, you can't ask people to cut back a little. That much food, that many people just doesn't work unless God steps in. And that's really what the miraculous is, right? We've talked about that. The miraculous is when God steps in. He changes the rules. And this morning, I want to look at three elements of this story and how they relate to us. Uh, how can we be changed just like this huge crowd of people was changed? How should this miracle point us towards Jesus? So let's look together. And the first thing I want you to understand and see from this story is that Jesus has a purpose in everything. Jesus has a purpose in everything. 
You know, verses five and six uh, said that uh, Jesus soon saw a great crowd of people climbing the hill looking for him. Turning to Philip, he says, Philip, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? And then it says he was testing Philip because he already knew what he was going to do. So Jesus had a plan, even in this question to Philip. And this is a huge test for Philip here, right? And Philip reacts, you know, but Jesus, there's no way. We can't do it. He reacts from the completely wrong perspective. The disciples don't see a spiritual situation here. They see a logistical problem. And what they don't understand is that everything really is spiritual. Not just the circumstance involved, but more specifically, our response to the circumstances going on around us. So in that light, traffic on 380 is spiritual. Okay, some of you might say demonic, but that traffic is spiritual. How we respond to it is spiritual. Waiting for your food at a restaurant is spiritual. My Cubs blowing another ninth inning lead or being unable to produce a single run in the playoffs is spiritual. And let me tell you, I cannot say with integrity that I responded favorably, that I had a good response to that. But what it comes down to is this, is we need God's perspective if we're going to respond to problems God's way. We need to not see things through our lens. We need to see things through God's sight, through God's vision, the way he views things. And how do we get God's perspective? It comes down to prayer. God changes us when we pray. When we spend time with him, and I'm not talking about just surface level, real quick prayers. I'm talking about spending time intimately with our creator. When we spend time with Jesus, God changes us when we pray. He realigns our hearts with his when we pray. And I doubt Philip in this moment when Jesus says, hey, where can we, where can we get some, where can we buy some food for all these people? I doubt Philip stopped and prayed before he complained. Prayer will help align our hearts with God's and give us the perspective that he has. And Jesus had a purpose here. We can't let our circumstances blind us from what we know to be true about God. This is a huge, huge principle. Never let your circumstances blind you from what you know to be true about God. If you were to go back in time to ask Philip and Andrew here, is they're standing here outside the context of this or any other tense situation that they faced. So send the crowds away, forget that. Whether or not they believed, they really believed that Jesus was the all-powerful son of God, whether or not they knew that he was capable of miraculous things. If you ask them that question, whether or not they believed him to be loving and compassionate towards others, willing to help in their time of need, I believe that as followers of Jesus and what, with what they have seen already, they would have said without hesitation, absolutely, he's loving, he's powerful, he's compassionate, he's done it before, why wouldn't he do it again? But in this story, Philip and Andrew, having found themselves in the heat of the moment with thousands of people with nothing to eat and feeling the weight of the responsibility to do something about it, they seem to forget almost everything they knew about Jesus in that moment. Philip thought it was impossible. Andrew thought it was improbable. How do you respond to the miracles of Jesus? You know what he's capable of. You've seen his power. You've seen his desire to help in your life and in the lives of others. And yet sometimes it seems like we forget everything that we know about Jesus when the pressure gets turned on. 
when you worry and stress over how you're going to meet all your financial responsibilities. It's like saying that either one, God's not powerful enough to help you, or two, he's not loving enough to help you. We kind of think it, that one of those two things are true. And when life doesn't quite go the way you were hoping, putting your goals in jeopardy, forcing you to use drastic, morally questionable methods maybe to try to fix things, compromising your beliefs as a Christian, it's like saying that either some obstacles are just too big that even God can't handle them, or God isn't really interested in what's going on in your life anyway, so you need to do whatever it takes to get by, to make things work. Or maybe when you're feeling unforgivable, for a particular sin or for a whole laundry list of sins. If you're feeling unforgivable, you're saying that either one, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection weren't quite sufficient to cover your sins, or you're saying that God so loved everyone else in the world that he sent his one and only son to forgive the sins and save the souls of everyone but you. None of these things that I just said are true. Regardless of what the issue or situation is, when we worry, when we doubt, when we fail to see God as part of the solution, we're saying either along with Philip, it's impossible even for God, or along with Andrew, it's improbable that God would do anything anyway. Either he's not great or he's not good. One thing you could definitely notice about Jesus' life from reading the Gospels is that he had purpose in everything he did. I mean, think about it. His entire ministry on earth was three years long. Everything was accomplished in three years. In that time, he had to prepare his followers to carry on his mission with the goal of reaching the entire world with the truth of God's love. He didn't have time to waste. He didn't have time to fool around. He had a purpose and his life mission was his sole focus. And we need to live our lives. We can learn from that with purpose as well. We need to live every day with a goal in mind, not just aimlessly wandering, not just hoping that things turn out well, but asking, how can I make a difference? Asking, how can I influence around the people around me? Asking, how can I live with a level of intentionality that really the short time that I have requires to be able to, to fulfill God's purpose and mission for me in this world in the time that I have available to me? How can I please God? But we need to recognize something else from this passage. God's purpose for us is not what most people are looking for. Most people are not actively searching for God's purpose for their lives. You see, Jesus was a great teacher, no question. Thousands of people followed him around to hear what he had to say. He traveled with a large group of people. He had a posse, if you will. They came in large open areas just to listen to him. Sounds kind of a little like a concert today, right? You know, big musician, lots, thousands of people following him around to hear him, travels with a large entourage, come into these large open areas to hear what he has to say, thousands of people gathering. But there's one fundamental difference today. Jesus turns to Philip and asks him, hey, Phil, run into town and buy some food for these guys, will you? Can you imagine a megastar in today's world not only providing a free concert for anyone who wanted to show up, but then offering to buy the whole crowd lunch? That ain't going to happen. But Jesus had a different agenda. He wasn't about what he could get from these people following him. He wanted to give to them. Jesus was all about giving. You know, John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave. God loved so much the only natural outflow of God's incredible love for us was that he gave. And Jesus wanted to provide for their needs. We are not like this by nature. This is not what comes naturally to us. In fact, we're just about the exact opposite. 
From the time we're little kids, one of the first words we learn is mine. That is, that is something that is intrinsic to us. Maybe you've heard these, the toddler property laws. I love this list. Toddler property laws. Number one, if I like it, it's mine. Number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Number three, if I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it's mine. If I think it's mine, it's mine. If it's yours and I take it, it's mine. And if it's mine, you can't have it. Those are the toddler property laws. And as we go back to the beginning of, of the message, you know, that seven children in the Cossack home, I can attest, this is true. And those wild horses must be broken. They have to learn that that's just not how we function. Um, and our natural direction as human beings is to look inward and to take care of ourselves. If we're going to learn what God's purpose for us is, we need to overcome this way of thinking. We can't live that way. We need to treat others as Jesus did. We need to learn to give, to minister to the people around us, and not think about what we're going to get in return. Jesus knew what he was going to do with regard to feeding them all miraculously, but he didn't pass up the opportunity he had to teach his disciples, specifically Philip in this case, a lesson. So focus on the needs of others. Give instead of getting. We need to have the same mentality today. God has called you to minister to people. He's called you to serve every one of us. There's not a single person alive that God doesn't have a plan for your life that is infinitely better than any plan you can concoct on your own. But we look at every opportunity with kind of this sideways glance saying, what's in it for me? What will I get out of this? Why do they get the recognition that I don't? Whereas Jesus says simply give. Now, the second takeaway from this story this morning is this. When we think we don't have enough, we need to remember that all God wants is what we have. When we think we don't have enough, we need to remember that all God wants is what we have. Philip, it's going to take a small fortune to feed him. Andrew says, hey, I, I, got, I got some barley loaves and some fish, but pff, what's that going to do? So Philip gets a little defensive here, right? I mean, Jesus asked him to find some food and he gets a little nervous. He feels the pressure. Jesus, we're broke. We barely can feed ourselves, let alone a crowd like this. We're talking about eight months to a year is kind of the range that I've found. Eight months to a year's salary to feed this crowd. So the rest of them see this exchange going on and they're, they're just, you know, they see Philip arguing with Jesus not a good place to be. So they kind of wander out into the crowd seeing what they can find. We're like, we're going to we're going to distance ourselves from this situation, try to find some food. Hey, you find anything? Nope. You? Nope. How about over there? Well, I, I got some hamburger buns and two all beef patties. This little kid had it. So they go over to Jesus and show him their catch. Uh, Jesus, we've got some food here. It's uh, five hamburger buns and two patties of beef. Now, I want you to see something here. I want you to see what Jesus did not say. Sometimes what Jesus doesn't say is more telling than what he does. Jesus did not say, that's it. He didn't respond, that's the best you can do. You go into the crowd and you muscle some pimply-faced kid and steal his lunch. What good is that going to do us here? Way to go there, Andrew. Worthless. No, that's not how Jesus responded to that. Uh, the kid didn't have much, but here's the thing. Jesus didn't need much. 
It wasn't about what the kid had to offer. It was that the kid gave. The kid gave all he had. You may not think you have much to offer God. What Jesus needs from you is what you have. And this prevents some people from giving. They think what they have won't matter. But God is more concerned with the heart and the willingness than he is with the gift itself. Give and let God make it more than we could ever on our own. Now, Jesus doesn't shoot them down. Instead, Jesus goes to work. He has the crowd sit down, and then he calls for the little boy's lunch, and the next step is where the miracle begins. He places his hands on them. Jesus' hands. The hands that wrapped around the nails on the cross. Is there a better place that you could place your talent, your abilities, your resources, your life, than in the hands of the one who gave you life in the first place? And no matter what we have to offer, place it in Jesus' hands and it will always be enough. That could be the most important thing that some of you hear today because you're convinced that what you bring isn't enough. When you give uh, financially, you don't think it's enough. When you serve, you don't think you're skilled enough. When you worship, you don't think you're worthy enough. When you pray, you don't think you know enough. Jesus wants what you have, nothing more and nothing less. And then it gets even better. He blesses it. The blessing of Jesus. When God's anointing is on your life, it doesn't matter how much you have to offer, it's going to be awesome. When you put your life entirely in Jesus' hands, he's going to bless you. He'll bless what you have. He'll bless who you are. He'll bless what you can do. God blesses us. Now, we love that part, right? Man, I want Jesus to bless me. Bless me, Lord. I want that. But then comes the critical part. He breaks them. He breaks them. Now, we don't like this step as much. Uh, we love the blessing part, but the breaking part? Okay, I could do without that. What does it mean to be broken? Our pride, our will, our selfish desires, our goals, our dreams, our lives. We need to be broken to be used by God because there is no blessing without the breaking. We need to be broken because there is no blessing without the breaking. We need to submit our lives totally to God. Then and only then can God use us. And he will use you in ways you never dreamed possible. Uh, do, you, do you think I ever thought God would use me to be able to speak into your lives week after week? To plant trilogy and continue to work towards helping people discover God's love for them here in the 380 corridor? No way. I'm not adequate to plant a church. I'm not up to the task. I'm not worthy to do it. I'm messed up. I'm broken. But God called and I was willing to follow. And when we make ourselves willing, God will make us worthy. Guys, please hear that today. You need to internalize that. When we make ourselves willing, God will make us worthy. You are worthy when you place yourself in God's hands. Let God use you. Put yourself in the hands of God. Allow him to break you. Then receive his blessing. Your life and the lives of everyone around you will never be the same. Final takeaway from the story this morning. Jesus always has more than enough. 
Jesus always has more than enough. I love this part of the story. This is my favorite part. You may have heard me teach on this before because I, I, I use this illustration from time to time. Jesus gets the Big Macs in his hands and he starts breaking them, right? And then he keeps breaking them. And he hands the pieces off to his disciples and they start passing out the Big Macs and he keeps going and he breaks the same pieces again and again and miraculously, they keep coming back for more. And the disciples are moving through the crowd asking, okay, who still needs some? Who didn't get any yet? All right, anyone for seconds? I still got more here. Still some left. Anyone for thirds? Okay, got a couple more pieces of burger here. Anyone want some? And when everyone had eaten all that they could, and flopped back on the grass, completely stuffed, Jesus now told his disciples to go out and pick up the pieces, and there were 12 basketfuls left over of what Jesus had provided. Now, there's a couple of possibilities here, okay? Maybe Jesus made a mistake. Maybe he was breaking bread and got carried away. Maybe he was so stoked that he just kept right on going. Maybe the disciples came up and said, hey, Jesus, we've got plenty. Don't bother me. I'm in the zone here. And he just kept going. Maybe he miscalculated, right? I mean, Jesus was so amped up that he overshot his goal and they had some food left over. Maybe he overestimated the size of the crowd. Anyone think that's likely? No. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus had a purpose. That he wanted to teach a lesson even with leftover food. You see, Jesus wanted to communicate to his disciples that there are more people out there than what are just on this hillside. That there is a world out there that needs what all of you have received today. And I think it's more than just a mere coincidence that there were 12 baskets full of food left over. How many disciples were there? 12. How many baskets full of food? 12. And I can imagine them all coming with their basket of leftover food and standing in front of Jesus, kind of with this look on their face saying, well, what do we do now? And maybe Jesus had to say it, or maybe this was one of the moments when the disciples actually got one of his illustrations without him having to spell it out for them. But the point was the same either way. Give it away. What you have received is not just for you, it's for others as well. What you have received is not just for you, it's for others as well. Jesus gave them so much food that they were completely full. They couldn't eat anymore. And maybe you felt that way before. And I'm not referring to a trip to Taco Tuesday. I'm talking about the presence of God. There are sometimes a powerful church service a great time alone with God in prayer, a special event like a camp or a conference where God's presence is felt in an incredible way, where you leave feeling so full of God that you don't think that you could hold anymore. When that happens, remember this, he has filled you for a purpose. So you can take the extra, go out and feed others. There is a multitude of spiritually starving people out there who have nowhere to go to be fed. They are counting on us to keep them from starving, to bring them to life. And we have the privilege of bringing our story to impact someone else's story and allowing them to discover his story. That's the purpose of Trilogy that we would give ourselves to God, we would allow ourselves to be broken and then give ourselves away again and again and again. There's a generation of hungry people out there. Every house in your neighborhood, every person who occupies a desk at your office, every person eating at the restaurant where you're gonna be eating lunch at today. There are people out there who are hungry and need someone to give them the truth of the gospel. 
God has given you more than enough. Can you imagine if every one of us took that truth today and started running with that? That God has given me more than enough and I need to give it away. If all of you made the decision to live your life with God's purpose, to put your life in Jesus' hands, to live with his blessing, and to live a life filled with God's power, his presence, and his purpose, and then to give it away. There are enough people that are on this call today. There's enough of us here uh, to impact thousands of people, to change lives for eternity. The question is not, could it happen? The question is, will I let it? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the privilege of joining together this morning to hear from your word. God, to, uh, to hear this truth of this miraculous account of you feeding 5,000 and for us to take that truth and now to begin to live that out. That God, you have a purpose for us. That God, what we have is enough if we place it in your hands. And God, you will always provide us with more than enough so that we can give it away, so we can take the overflow of our lives and pour into someone else. And God, I pray that you would help us to do that. Holy Spirit, would you fill us today, full and overflowing with your power and your presence, that we might have the, that your power that will go with us. And as Acts 1.8 says, we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on us. And Lord, I pray that that would be true in our lives, that we would have that the, the power of the Holy Spirit to go out and be your witnesses, to tell your story, to let others experience your goodness, to experience your power the same way that we have. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.